In the Old Testament, there was a tabernacle. It was that which God provided to presence himself among his people. Explicit directions were given as to how the tabernacle was to be built. It was to be a certain size. It would be built out of certain material. Interestingly enough, it was to be set up. It was temporary or that it, it was mobile. It was to be set up and erected in a certain direction. There was an outer court about 75 feet by 150 feet. Inside that was the tabernacle proper. But in the courtyard, it was always erected pointing east. And that was the only gate. It was the only opening. If you wanted to go in, and there were certain times that you could for various reasons, you must come in through the east gate. The first thing that you would see when you entered into that courtyard was an altar of sacrifice. That altar of sacrifice was square. It was made out of wood. It was overlaid with brass. It was five cubics square, about seven feet, let's suppose. On each corner of that altar of sacrifice where the sacrificial animals would be burned was a horn. That is, not just an ornate piece that looked good. There were purposes for these horns. They were actually called horns of refuge. Now in the Old Testament economy, there were certain uh, things that were given to the people uh, for their benefit. Uh, in, in this particular case, if there was an unintentional slaying or killing of a person, we, maybe we would call that manslaughter today. Something happened you never intended for the person to die, but the person did die. Then there was the law of the blood avenger. The next in the family could actually have the right under that system to take revenge on the person who killed his relative. But God had made an escape for that person. And the escape could be if you could get to the tabernacle door, look through that east gate, see the altar of sacrifice, run into one of those four corners, and literally grab hold of one of the horns of refuge, then you could be safe. That is, you'd get a fair trial. That is, things would be considered. It is quite interesting that it goes on to cities of refuge. God always providing a place of safety and refuge. If I mention the word refugee, there you go. I mean, you take off like this, you go, people fleeing, run out of their homes, floods, wars, tornadoes, uh, uh, no place to go, no, no place of safety. And, and then they find a camp, a refugee camp. And there they could be cared for. Now take your Bibles and let's go to Romans chapter 8 because 
I want to speed up this thought to the New Testament counterpart and see if we can't find some horns of refuge in the New Testament. <clears throat> now, in the economy of the law, the pursuer could get on your trail. He could come. He, he, he was like a private eye. Do you see so-and-so? Yeah, which way did they go? Yeah, and he could be pursuing you. By way of application, we are being pursued. Every person here is being pursued. Haunting memories, they're after you. Regrets, wrong choices, frightened by accusing conscience. Oh, if I would have just, how many times have you thought of that? And the accusers are coming. Some are just exhausted from running away. One thing we all know that we need a place of refuge, a shelter in the time of storm. Let me suggest for you that in Romans chapter 8 and in verse 34, we have four horns of refuge. Before we read that verse, let me read what God says in Luke 1 and 69. For God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David. The, the Lord Jesus is actually called a horn of salvation. Let me suggest for you by way of application in verse 34, we're going to see Christ in various aspects of his character and his ministry as being four horns of refuge. Something you can hold on to. Something you can get rest from. Uh, something that will give you time to think and evaluate and not fear. We live in a world of fear. I mean, whoever thought uh, if they wrote no fear on a bumper sticker or a t-shirt or a cap, it would sell. Okay, I've been telling my boys, I said, listen, you, you want to make money? Here's a way to make money. Just come up with something nobody's ever come up with. That's all you got to do. <laughs> Doesn't have to be anything big, just like a little tail light in the back deck of your car. That'll work. Now, if you're really, I'm going to really let the cat out of the bag now. If you're really interested in this, come up with a windshield wiper, please. We're still using the ones that Henry Ford invented. Okay, that's all you got to do. Now the cat's out of the bag, and all you entrepreneurs can go do that, see? But, but, but we live in a world where nothing is absolute anymore, apart from the Word of God and Christian doctrine. The, the world is, is fluid. It's moving. It's up. It's down. And what we need is something solid, Something we can count on. Something I can hold on to today, and it's going to be there tomorrow, and it's going to be there the next day, and the next year, and into eternity. Something that I can count on. Four horns of refuge. Let me read it for you. Verse 34. 
Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Horn number one, it's Christ that died. Refuge number two, yea, risen. Horn of refuge number three, at the right hand of God. And number four, who makes intercession for us. Four horns of refuge. You say, well, we already know this. <laughs> Some years ago, I think it was the first time I ever attended a Brethren Conference in Guelph, Ontario. It's a men's conference. It's always the first weekend of June every year. Some of you guys have probably been there. If you haven't, I can recommend it. It's a great weekend. It's a men's conference. So I go for the first time many, many years ago, and I went for a number of reasons. But one of the reasons I went was, was because that uh, a brother, Dan Snadden, was going to be speaking. And I never met Dan Snadden, but I heard of him. And I so appreciated his ministry. And I wanted to go and sit under his ministry. He opened up the ministry that Friday night. I mean, I'm sitting on the front row. I got a Bible that's this big. I got a notebook full of paper. I even brought extra pens in case they ran out of ink. And I am sitting down there. I am like a bird in the nest with my mouth open. And I'm going, bring it on. Like, let's, let's get it. I can't wait, you know. And, Brother Dan gets up and he says, I'd like for you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. I went, oh, are you kidding? I already know everything there is to know about Romans 12, 1 and 2. Like I was expecting some big, powerful, back here, nobody ever saw it. And you got to have Young's literal translation to even see it, you know, and some secret, hidden truth that no one ever got before. I literally closed my book, and I was so disappointed. I already know that. Until he started, of course. And now I know, I don't know anything <laughs> about the scriptures. I certainly didn't have a handle on Romans 12, 1 and 2. Things become so common, we think we know them so well. We've already decided what we know. We can't go any further with that. We just move along to something new. These are four simple points, aren't they? Christ died. Yea, he's risen. Sits at the right hand of God and makes intercession. You go, I know that. Well, I hope I can help you appreciate that a little bit. You see, Christ dying for every child of God, this is the starting point. This is first base. You can't get home unless you touch first. It's got to start here. 
When we're born into this world, the Bible makes it very, very clear that all have sinned. I know you're a sinner. I know, because the Bible tells me that. And I also know you're a sinner because your daddy was a sinner, and my daddy was a sinner, and his daddy was a sinner, and his daddy was a sinner, and you can back it right up to the Garden of Eden, and as one man sinned, then sin has been passed on to all men. That's what the Bible says. No one exempt in this congregation, in this city, in this world. All have sinned. When you were born into the world, you were born separated from God. No, I, I realize there's an age of accountability here. Don't, don't paint me as the bad guy. I understand God knows that a lot better than we do. And he makes provision for that. But we're not talking about them. We're talking about us in this room. We have the smell of sin on us. And there are hounds of hell that are pursuing us. And they have been pursuing us all of our life. Death and hell and sin and the graves. That's a pack of hounds and they're after you. They want to consume you. They, they want to overcome you. They want to destroy you. And the, and the Bible is very clear. That's exactly what's going to happen. Because we are sinners. And death and hell and the grave are after us. I want you to visualize in your mind that one day you're aware of this. All of a sudden I hear a pack of hounds in the back. And they're coming for me. And I don't know where to go. And they're hunting me. And they're haunting me. And I can hear the growls and the barks. And they're gaining ground. I'm losing ground. But then I see a hill called Calvary. And there, there's a man by the name of Jesus. And that man, Christ Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God is hanging on a cross. Here is a man who doesn't have the smell of sin on him. There's nothing that anyone can accuse him of. He is the perfect man, the God-man, and he's on a cross. And I look to that cross and I look to him. And the Bible says Christ died for our sins. And I'm making my way to that hill but the hounds of hell are gaining. Finally, I get close enough that I see him, that I believe in him, that I trust him. He is dying for me. God has laid my sin on him. And as I do that, as I trust him, as I embrace him, a most marvelous thing happens. The hounds of hell can't smell me anymore. He's got my scent on him now. They pick up his scent. And judgment and death and separation and sin and hell unlooses its fury on him, the Lord Jesus. God laid on his son. I, I can't do that. I got two sons, I got a daughter. There's no way I'm going to do that. 
People come to me, you know, and they say, well, if you believe you've got a, a loving God up there, uh, where was God when the tsunami hit? Where was God when the marathon bombers exploded? Uh, where, where was God when... And you know what they ask, don't you? There's a loving God. Why are babies dying? Why are people dying with cancer? What's going on? The world is, is sick and evil and sinful. Where is God? I want to ask you a question. Where was God when an angry mob took his son and beat him unrecognizably and allowed that mob to spit on him and curse him and abuse him and kill him? Where was God? Christ died for you. For you. He took your place. He's your representative man. Jesus, be, don't get your theology mixed up. Jesus never sinned. But God treated him like a sinner. The Bible says he became sin. Jesus became something he never was so that I could become something I never was. I was never righteous in God's eyes. But the one who knew no sin became sin for me that I might be made the righteousness of God in him. Christ died for our sin. We, we teach it, we preach it, we read it from the Bible. Uh, sin separates us from God. No wonder the sky went dark. Sin has done its if I could dare use his words, it's damned us on the Lord Jesus. It separated him. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know, we know. It's because he took our sin, which would separate us from God, and paid the penalty of that sin for all of eternity, that you and I, by the grace of God, who embrace him, might go free. Christ Dodd. <laughs> That's the one horn. I can, I can hold on to that. I can get rest for my weary soul for that. I can uh, get understanding of, of what God thinks of me and what he thinks of his son. I can appreciate that this is a place of refuge and safety for me. And I hold on to that. But that's not the end. It says not only did Christ die. Notice it says, yea, rather is risen Again, I want you to visualize a, a battlefield in your mind. Craters, smoke, destruction, fire, dead bodies everywhere. And, and through the smoke and the fire and the devastation, you can't hardly focus. But as you, as you look, you see one solitary figure standing. And as you focus on this figure, it is the Lord Jesus. All of the enemies are dead. He has conquered the grave. He's won the day. Oh, he's bleeding and he's bruised and he's 
wounded, but he's standing. And he has surfaced from the volcano of the wrath of God. And from the cross, he says, I thirst. The only time he would call attention to himself from the cross. Yea, rather, is risen again. The Bible says that the last enemy, the worst enemy, the, the greatest enemy that you and I face is the enemy of death. And that's not just six feet under in the cemetery. That is eternal separation from God. Think about it for a minute. If Christ has won the day, if he has rose victorious over the grave, death and hell, and you have trusted him, listen to me, what are you worried about? He has already conquered the worst enemy. I was in Bible school for a few years. I met a young man at that Bible school. His name was Tim Allen. He was from Colorado. Tim wasn't raised in a Christian home. He got saved later in life, in his 20s. And he was, a, he was a rebel. He he had a life full of drugs and vices and sin. I mean, it's, he, he wasn't afraid of anybody or anything. That was just Tim Allen. He was riding a a motorcycle down a railroad track one day in the middle of the desert somewhere in Colorado. And <clears throat> no helmet, no shirt, cutoffs, no, just running shoes, no socks. He said, after 60 miles an hour, you don't hit the bumps anymore. Just winds out like a, like a super highway. So I don't know how fast he was going. What he didn't realize is that sometimes in the desert where the tracks go through, they put some sort of a wooden platform so jeeps can get over the tracks. And he didn't see that till the last minute. He said, I managed to get the front tire up. I didn't hit it with the front tire, but the back tire caught it, and it flipped him over this way down the tracks about 200 yards. You'll hear his own testimony perhaps sometime. I cannot get into detail because it is too gory. But a lot that was on the inside came out. He couldn't hardly move. Part of his foot was embedded in that platform. He was cut and banged and broken in every imaginable way. And he said he, he managed to crawl with one hand. It was steep on both sides. And he, and he managed to crawl up. And as he, as he crawled up, he said, actually, in the middle of nowhere, a car went by. And he said, I'll never forget, there was a little guy in the back of that car, and he had his face right up to the glass, and he was looking at me, and he said, I was a mess. And they said they kept driving. But eventually, a car came by, and they took him to the hospital, and he said, I made a deal with God in that hospital that, that if you save me, God, I will serve you. The doctor said, you'll never walk again. He said, I learned to walk on my hands because my feet and legs didn't work. He said, I can go upstairs on my hands. 
And as soon as I improved enough that I could start walking with crutches, I just want you to know, I'm going to, give, I'm going to tell you like, I, like he told me. I, I, I want you to know what kind of a mentality this guy had. He said, I looked right up to heaven, and I gave God the finger, and I told him to F off. I didn't need him anymore. That's the kind of a man we're dealing with. I'll make, I'll make agreements with God when I need him, when I don't need him. There was all kinds of things happened. I wish I could go into greater details. He ended up, his brother was in Vietnam. All kinds of things happened. People showed him love. Love. And they asked him to go to a Bible camp. I'm not sure where it was. He said, I had hair down to my waist. I had cutoffs on. He said, I had my strength back. I don't want nobody telling me what to do. And that night, somehow, the Spirit of God worked in his life, and he got convicted of his sin, and the man gave an invitation to come. He said, Christ has died for your sins, and he has risen again to give you new life. And the typical Tim Allen style, he didn't walk the aisle. (laughs) He jumped up on the back of the pew And he stepped on the backs of the pew as he came forward that night, right down across and came down. And he trusted Christ as his Savior. I spent about three years with him, maybe four. I don't think I ever met anybody more zealous for the things of God, so embarrassed of the life that he lived before. And he said, I'd rather burn out than rust out. Never met a man more zealous. He got cancer when he was 38. He was married. He had four little children. He wanted to go on a trip with me, and I said, Tim, I'm I'm going to Florida. We're in Canada. I said, you have no insurance. You can't go down there. Uh, What if you get sick down there? He said, God will look after me. He said, God wants me to go. I said, well, God wants you to go. I'm not going to tell you you can't go. I went down for a conference. He got so sick he couldn't even stand up. Had to get permission from Ottawa and Toronto and two different doctors to get him on an airplane to get him back. He's laying down at the gate. He can't sit in a chair. He's so painful from the cancer. He said, I got to go to the washroom. I said, I'll help you. You got to give a man his privacy. I, I didn't want to treat him like a baby, but I was scared that he'd hurt himself. So I... Went into the washroom with him. I just went back to the door and just waited. Do you know that he put a gospel track in every stall and at every part on the counter? And I had to help him out of there because he couldn't walk. I want to burn out, not rust out. I was with him just a few days before he died. He was in so much pain. If they took a sheet and put it on him, you'd hear him at the other end of the hospital, and he never cries. He said, Joe, I'm not going to make it. God's going to take me home. I want you to take my funeral. I said, I cannot take your funeral. can't do it. 
He said, God gave me grace to bury my mother and bury my father and bury my brother. He said, God will give you the grace and I want you to bury me and I won't take no for an answer. I do not know we, the, the, the um, place of the funeral, the location was changed three times to accommodate the anticipated crowd. I don't know how many people were there. I honestly don't know. I know there were 300 at the graveside. And at the graveside with his wife and those four little kids, you know what we sang? Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Can you get that horn? Can you get it? That's a place of refuge. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. How sweet to hold a newborn babe. She had one. Come on. This is real. To feel the pride and joy he gives, but greater still, the calm assurance this child can face uncertain days. Why? Because he lives. Dear friend, this takes the fear away. Oh, death, where's your sting? I'll tell you, there's a man in, in heaven who's got the sting of death right here. And death has done its best on him, and he beat it. He rose again from the dead. And you don't have to be afraid because death has nothing over you. Not only has he died, but he has risen again. Look at the third horn of refuge. Who is even at the right hand of God. Do you know that the right hand of God is a place of authority? The Lord Jesus is about to leave the earth and he says to his disciples, come here, come here, I got something to tell you. There's a big world out here. We got to get the gospel out to them. All power is given unto me, he said, in heaven and in earth. And I'm with you. Oh, <laughs> Uh, we could never do it, could we? Uh, we uh, Twelve men could never do it. Uh, Twelve generations could never do it. Twelve centuries could never do it. It is a big job. How would we ever do it? Well, the one who's got all power, who's been given all powers with us. You see, he is sovereign. You know what that means? Absolute control. Put it, put it in perspective. Nothing can touch you that doesn't cross his desk first. can't. Isaiah sees him high and lifted up and he's sitting on the throne. He's sitting. Not frantically rubbing his hands, pacing in front of the throne saying, what will I do? What will I do? That is a horn of refuge you can get a hold of this afternoon and you can find safety in. You can find comfort in. Christ died. Yes, he has. Christ has risen. He's destroyed the worst enemy. He's on your side. He's with you. And he is all-powerful. He sits at the right hand of God. If I mention the name Amy Carmichael, some of you would know that name. 
She was just 28 when she left Northern Ireland. A sad thing happened over there. I don't know. I'm going to guess now. It wouldn't be probably any longer than five years ago. They tore her house down. That was a memorial, you know. They should have kept that. Not, not to worship a woman, but to recognize the power of the gospel in India. That's what it should have been. Amy Carmichael was 28. She spent 56 years in India. They were donated, that is, they were given a plot of land to uh, use for the Lord's work, and she and several friends went to look at the plot of land. It was getting near evening when they went, and <clears throat> they got to this facility that was given to the through the work of God, and there was a gate, and it was locked. They couldn't get in. But a neighbor came. He said, I think I have a key for this property, and he worked with it, and sure enough, they got in. They walked in through the gate. Uh, it was getting dark. She didn't see a hole in front of her. It was actually a pit that had been dug. She fell into that pit, and Amy Carmichael spent the next 19 years of her life in bed till she died. Many, if not most, of the books and poems that you so cherish and read and enjoy were written from the throne of that bed. That was her portion. That was God's plan. And from that bed came the real life experiences, the, the joys, the frustrations, the sorrows of life that she could so identify with. Why could she do that? Because she believed that Jesus was at the right hand of God. She believed that he had all authority. She believed that he whispered, listen, the most comforting words you may ever hear, this side of glory. Are you ready? is when the Lord says, I'm with you. I got it under control. Isaiah 41.10, be not dismayed. I'm thy God. Don't be frantically running around, worrying about it. I've got it under control. If I mention the name Dawson Trotman, some of you will know that name. President and founder of the Navigators, a wonderful Christian organization committed to discipling of men and women. Dawson Trotman was on a lake in New York State in a boat with some others, and the boat capsized, and they fell out, and Dawson Trotman couldn't swim. As best he could, he helped two women get hold on to the side of that boat, but he went down. His wife, Lila, was on the shore. She saw the whole thing happen. Finally, one of the survivors got to shore and, and, and said to her, He's gone. He's gone, Lila. No, there was nothing we could do. He's gone. He's gone. That godly woman walked away and said, Our God is in the heavens. He has done whatsoever has pleased him. How can she say that? Because she believes that the Son of God sits at the right hand 
of God and he is in control. When you believe that God is sovereign, you can go through anything. There's a lady in our city in Sault Ste. Marie who's in a wheelchair. She wasn't always in a wheelchair, but she's confined to that wheelchair now. Periodically, I used to take preachers to see her. <laughs> You'd say, so the preachers could encourage her, right? No, not a chance. So Marjorie could encourage the preachers. <laughs> you see, she believed that God son sat at his right hand I was over there one day and um, she said every year there's a team that goes to South America to help the poor and she said I wanted to send some money uh, so that uh, I could help the poor but I didn't have any money to send so I asked God give me some money so I could send to the poor Marjorie's taken with a disease that's confined her she doesn't have a lot of muscle control anymore. Very difficult for her to talk. And through that difficulty, she said to me, if you could open that drawer, there's a brown envelope in that drawer. Would you get that brown envelope out? So I did. She said, open it. And I opened it up, and there was a note. And the note said, Miss West, um, I can't quote this, but please find enclosed gift to be used as the Lord directs you. Something like that. Written in block letters like a first grader would print, trying to disguise who it was. No name. There was $400 in the envelope. I looked on the outside. It was postmarked Pelston, Michigan. Uh, I don't know, maybe hour, hour and a half drive south of the Sioux into the state of Michigan. So I said to Marjorie, I said, Marjorie, I said, do you know anybody in Pelston, Michigan? As best she could, she gathered herself together and she said, No, but God does. How can she do that? Because she believes the Son of Man sits on the right hand. God. Refuge. Number four. who also makes intercession for us. Boy, this is one you got to get. <laughs> this, this is a good one. We have an accuser, you know, the devil himself. And he doesn't have to look very far to find something to accuse me of. I don't know about you. Imagine him saying, hey, God... Uh, do you see Joe? Look at Joe. Joe says he's a Christian. Look how he's acting. Look, how, look what he said. Look, look what he's doing. Look what he's living for. He doesn't love you, God. Kill him. Send him to hell. 
how do you respond when people accuse you of things and you know it's true? Pretty hurt, hurtful, isn't it? You're kind of embarrassed, aren't you? I said it. I did it. It was wrong. Listen, before God, who shall stand? <laughs> I can't stand. There's no way. Listen, when you try to argue with the devil that you're not that bad, you'll just end up agreeing with him that you're worse. And we have no merit to stand before God. And when the accuser of the brother of the brethren uh, and the sister, when he accuses us, let me tell you something. We have, we have no defense. But thank God we have an advocate who's at the right hand of God who ever lives to make intercession for us. Let me tell you what happens at that point. Our advocate, the Lord Jesus, you know what he says, Father, excuse me. You see, um, there was a day when this poor sinner right here trusted in my blood. I, I know he's having a bad day, God. He's not doing too well. But he's in our family. You, you remember the blood covenant that, that we made and well, he's under the blood. And I plead his case. I've already died for his sins. His sins are gone as far as the east from the west and the depths of the sea. Gone. They're not covered, God. They're gone. You cannot hold it to his account. And the judge says, defendant, innocent. He ever lives to make intercession. It's one thing if he'd just die for us. It's another thing that he rose from the dead for us. It's another thing that he's sovereign and he works out all purposes for us and for him, the sovereign God, all power, and he's with us and he's for us. And then he said, on a bad day, I'll take your case. I'll see you through. We're going all the way. Underneath are the everlasting arms. His banner over us is love. The angel of the Lord encamps round about us. We rest in the hands that no man can pluck us from. We're hidden with God and Christ, and if God be for us, who could be against us? Now you get a hold of those horns of refuge, Christian. They're there for you. They're there for your encouragement. They're there for your blessing. And I'll tell you, don't you ever be ashamed to be a refugee in the camp of your God. Let's pray. Father, we can't believe you would do so much for us. We know we don't deserve it. There's not one person in this auditorium this afternoon that could stand before a holy God and say, I've been good. Thank you for grace and mercy. Thank you that you judged your son instead of us. We can't understand how you could do that, how you could love us so much. He paid the penalty of our sins. Christ died for us. Yea, rather, is risen again. 
who sits at the right hand of God and makes intercession for us. We are of all people most blessed. Father, help us to take that message far and wide, never to be puffed up or never to be proud of what we are apart from Jesus Christ. We are nothing in ourselves. We have no merit. There is nothing in us that is good save Christ himself. And so I pray for every dear soul here today. Could there be one among us this afternoon who's not sure of heaven? They've been trusting in their own righteousness. They've been trusting in their own philosophy. They've been hoping that somehow connected with a religion or denomination or uh, some uh, book that they will merit favor with God. We know our Father Jesus himself said it. There's only one way to the Father, and that's through me. And so we commend to you every individual, every home represented, every assembly represented. And thank you that the horns of refuge in the Old Testament might be obsolete now, but we have horns of refuge in the New Testament. And they're all the person of the Lord Jesus himself. Thank you for those who convened this conference. Thank you for many who will now go home to their own assemblies for tomorrow. We pray that you would take them in safety and as the shepherd goes before the sheep, you will go before them. And because of our coming together this afternoon and last night, and because of the ministry that you've given to our brother Joe and myself, that the Spirit of God might work first in the hearts of the preachers and then in the hearts of the congregation and that we might be a little more conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus because of our coming together, commending ourselves to you in his name, the Lord Jesus Christ.